but nothing happens between Christmas and New Year's, right? I just love the idea of the people of Ennis just going, I know people are dying, but the important question is, what day is it? I need to know when I can put the bins out. <laughs> with the scene with Hank playing guitar, did you think it was not a gratuitous close-up of his G-string? I will admit, that's a little bit of a torturous road to go down, but fine. Is it, though? <laughs> Only uses loose drugs. Tomorrow comes to take me away. I wish that I, that I could stay. But girl, you know I've got to go. Oh, oh. And Lord, I wish it wasn't so. Oh, oh. This podcast was recorded remotely and may contain adult language and themes. Hello and welcome to TV DNA True Detective Night Country Episode 5. My name is Adam Henning. And there is no king, he won't be crowned. It's Neil Shepek. Can't get you heroin, Adam. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> and you will not sing, lost your sound. Damien Cooper. Blood is blood, Adam. Remember that. <laughs> How could I forget? Yes, indeed. So those lines will tell you we're going to be covering spoilers for True Detective Night Country. I used that line last week, but I quite enjoyed it. So I'm using it again this week. Well, the penultimate episode of the series, uh, an awful lot of stuff going on here, so a lot to cover, but any initial thoughts on this fifth episode? I want to hear from Damo because it's still very kind of supernatural. My suspicion is that that's all a red herring and it's going to become very specific and everything will make sense, but maybe it won't. Uh, yeah, on the supernatural level, how are you feeling, Damo? I mean, we, I, it feels like we didn't necessarily have too much supernatural stuff in this episode other than Navarro's attempt at ice swimming. My, for me, this episode is a bit of a mixed bag. When I watched it initially, I loved it, particularly that last, whatever it was, 10 minutes or so. But now that I've had time away from it, I think that actually the series is not doing very well i think it started really well obviously last week was very very fillery and there's just a lot of issues i feel particularly with male characters and how they're written in this show oh no oh dear i'm sure we'll get to that point unless you want to elaborate further on that now Dave. I, I, I understand why you just said that. I'm not sure I, I, well, I haven't processed it properly, whether I agree, but I see why you would say that. Well, I, I just feel Hank is really poorly written, a phenomenal actor, and we suddenly get yeah. some stuff from him other than being like a useless chauvinist. We had some nice nuance there, only for him to be killed off at the end of the episode. Peter is just completely put upon. Spoilers. Yeah, we, we are covering spoilers, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> and considering they're the kind of two main male characters that we have in this show, they are fairly underwritten. Yeah, without properly thinking through, I I potentially think I agree with you on that. I think Pete will definitely come to light, as it were, in the final episode. But, yeah, same with Chris Breckerson's character. But, okay, underwritten characters is a bad thing, regardless of their gender. I, I, I completely am on board with you on that. If this series is more female-dominated, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. 
But I do agree, any characters that are underwritten isn't a good thing. Yeah, and if the feminist in me is saying this is a show that's about two strong female characters. A lot of the, the story and the plot revolves around violence done to women. And so who gives up a monkeys about how well written the, the blokes are? How well written were the female characters in the first series of True Detective? Good point, good. Go on, Damo. Yeah, I, I agree. And and I would make that complaint as well, had we been doing episodes on that, <laughs> that they, they very much fell within the boring paradigm of whore and nun in series one and in other series. Yeah. I agree, yeah, it's brilliant that we have this show that deals with these female relationships, and I'm all for that. My issue is, is that when we do have male characters, they're badly written. And if we're going to stand, if we're going to say that we don't think that's okay when it's the other way around, I think we also have to flag it when it is, you know, conversely the case too. I don't know what the male equivalent is of the Bechdale test, (laughs) but I wonder if this show would pass it. I really wish Grace was in on this because I would love, I mean, with three male middle-class privileged in in perspective i i I would love to have grace in our conversation right now but yeah if you want to at damien you can find him on his social media (laughs) yeah i'm up for it hey look guys i'm not i'm not pushing some incel agenda here i'm just saying i think it's a shame because there are some really well-written characters don't get me wrong some of the female characters are pretty poorly written in this show as well. Um, and, and I do think that's a shame too, because we find ourselves kind of on, I feel like there's elements of this episode and the episode before where we find ourselves going down the path most taken, for want of a better phrase. And I'm not sure that it's really within the way of doing True Detective. Okay. I thoroughly enjoyed this episode. <laughs> It'll be no surprise for you to hear. Um, <laughs> let's get into the weeds of it, and then we can maybe pick out some of the bits that worked or didn't didn't quite work. But we start off with a furnace. There's these little balls of things that we then later discover are um, ash balls, and this is Julia Navarro's cremation. And we learn it's December the 31st, so the 14th day of night, which means it's an entire week after the last episode. But nothing happens between Christmas and New Year's, right? I just love the idea of the people of Ennis just going, I know people are dying, but the important question is, what day is it? I need to know when I can put the bins out. <laughs> just eating turkey sandwiches, aren't we? And dealing with leftovers. Or vodka sandwiches, if you're Liz Danvers. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Ange has persuaded the people at the crematorium, or the woman at the crematorium, to let her watch the whole process. And I, I quite like the moment where she's handed the urn with Julia's ashes in, and she says... Be careful, it's hot. Fresh from the oven. <laughs> that's that's trauma on a plate. Yeah. Cut to Liz Danvers, visiting Otis again. So he's he's on withdrawal, we learn. He's allowed up to 10 minutes contact. So he's been going through this process for a week, and every now and then she gets to go in and speak to him, I guess. But essentially, Clark wanted to know how he survived his injuries. And he describes Clark as being a bit of an oddball who just kept saying she's awake. And then we learn about Otis's backstory. So 30 years ago, there was a cave-in. There was a man who died trapped in the ice. There was a blizzard. He heard something screaming and howling. And all of the other people he was with followed the sound. And then nothing. And he somehow survived this. Well, there's very little else 
for us to know about that. I'm assuming that will come to light in the final episode. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit of a weird one, isn't it? He doesn't really know how he survived his injuries. It's not sort of fully explained, but somehow he did, whereas everyone else died. But the key thing is he knows about this cave system. That's why he's such an important character. And he talks about the the caves collapsing and it's like crawling on thin glass. So, you know, perhaps foreshadowing what's to come in the final episode. He's got the intel about where the mouth of the caves are. Yes. So he he passes... Does he pass that on at this point? Maybe he does. Because they go there then, don't they? Eventually, yeah. But yeah, he's, he's essentially he's asking for heroin, isn't he? he? That He wants heroin in exchange for his information. And Liz is saying no way. We then get a brief scene of Kayla kicking Pete out. There's there's a kind of moment of Liz and Ange together and she asks Ange if she wants to talk about it. Pete is being booted out of his, his home. Yeah, uh, I mean, so this, this is one of my issues here about this storyline. Like, I get, obviously, that it's an all-encompassing job and it's very difficult, but it feels like Pete is just getting shat on by everyone and he's very much the Chloe Bishop from Line of Duty in Ennis. He's the only one doing any actual fucking police work. And everyone's just griefing him constantly. I just found that all a bit much, that he's just doing his job. He's a policeman. There's someone, there are people dying en masse, including natives. And his missus is like, yeah, this is too much. Off you go. Yeah, but when your dad's Johnny Cash, then, you know, surely that's cool. (laughs) Wasn't it nice to see that Hank could do something? Yeah, he can play the guitar and he's got a good voice. I definitely agree. I think it was it was engineered so that Pete was no longer at his place. And the kind of whole, you know, we talked about the line last week of him saying, you know, you never wanted kids and, and you blame me for that. It does feel a little bit like it's been sort of shoehorned into the show. But that's where we are anyway. He gets he gets booted out and it's key for later on in the story, right? Well, absolutely. You know, it was setting up the end of this episode. So they find out that the cave is on Silver Sky property. So the Silver Sky mines own the land where the cave is. And then we get the conversation about uh, Leah. She's got a girlfriend and she's turned into a crazy radical. And Navarro says she's not crazy. And then we cut to a shot of her having her face smeared <laughs> with black paint, then checking to see how cool she looks. Sorry, then we go into the um, the Hank playing guitar and I love this sequence I thought this was great so he's basically singing a sad and depressing song as the mine people are meeting the protesters fights breaking out and at the end of all of this his string breaks right yeah no I I thought that was a really good piece of I I, I guess film storytelling Uh, also throughout that sequence there's also a moment where Navarro thinks that she sees her sister and it just kind of shows where her mind is at. So I would say that sequence was a really good piece of storytelling. Yeah, well, in, in amongst that, we also see Leah ends up getting into a fight. One of the stormtroopers basically starts beating her up and she calls out to her girlfriend who disappears, which I thought was quite a nice metaphor for mm. people just kind of leaving the Inuit people to deal with this and off they go to their own comfort because it's not really their fight. They're bystanders and they can leave when they want. Navarro has a fight with one of the other riot squad. I guess my question is, how big is the riot squad in Ennis? 
<laughs> well, they're the state troopers, aren't they? It's the state troopers <laughs> supposed to be breaking all of this, this stuff up. I want to pick up on something that each of us said. The bit that I missed from Hank singing is obviously that Pete's listening to him sing the whole time. Mm, so mm. the, kind of, the meaning of the song to Hank, who's who's been duped, the meaning of the song to Pete, who's been kicked out of his, his home, and then obviously the meaning of the song to the protesters as well. So I thought that was a nice sort of triple layering of stuff yeah. in there. It's Annie that she thinks she sees in the protest because Annie was a protester. There's Annie in the pink coat, Ryan, yeah. that she thinks she sees in the crowd. And um, it, when Leah throws something, it hits Ange on the head. <laughs> She's breaking up fights. Something hits her on the back of the head. She turns around and it's Leah who's thrown it. And then this other guy lays into Leah. And that's and that's when Ange comes in and sort of saves her and fights with her. Wilson, I think his name was, that guy. Again, loads of stuff happening. And this was, for me, the whole reason of Leah being in the show, the story, this kind of episode was brought her part to play to bear, I thought, throughout all of this. And she's got a couple of key scenes with different characters, I think, later on in the episode, which I think will feed into the way the story develops. I think also the one question I have, so I would be interested in hear both the, hearing both your opinions on it, with the scene with Hank playing guitar, did you think it was not a fortuitous close-up of his G-string? Yeah, I, I think you're right, Demo, and I loved it. So Connolly calls Liz, he tells her she's got to go and see Kate McKittrick, the owner of the mines. She's basically like, this isn't my job. This is a state trooper thing, nothing to do with me, but he insists. And then we see Leah and Navarro in the car, some really great dialogue between them in the car, I thought. And Navarro says, Jesus Christ, I'm actually feeling for Danvers right now. Mm. Yeah, I guess my issue with this scene was Navarro's literally just stopped her from getting the shit kicked out of her by some lug. She's not doing anything wrong. She's she's just saved her from being seriously beaten up, if not worse. And she's now taking her to keep her safe. And Leah's just Still kind of classical, boring, stereotypical, moody teenager. She starts talking about fuck the police and all that sort of jazz. You think, okay, fine, I get it. But equally, Navarro has just saved your ass. Yeah, Navarro's doing what she's been told to do, and she has saved her ass. But as you say, she is a moody teenager. That's what they do. That's what we did. She's a moody teenager or an activist fighting for her community who are being poisoned by this mine. Both. There are lots of teenage activists right now. So I think her, her beef with Navarro was that you're on the wrong side of this. You should be fighting with me. Yeah, I guess. I just found it very hard to like in this episode. I think it's very contemporary that at the moment people who protest feel like the police should be on their side. I, I think that is a very in-the-moment um, feeling, particularly by young people. So you were quite happy with the fact that she got locked up then, Damo. Danvers decides that she needs to spend some time in a cell, maybe to keep her safe from everything that's going on, but also probably to teach her a lesson. Yeah, I'm trying to work that out. At what level is that Nepo baby? Because <laughs> she has been arrested. So Nepo baby would usually mean, yeah, of course, all things are waived, much like the graffiti at the mines. But equally, she's put her in that cell for her own good. Well, yeah, it is about the, you know, it's it's all about Annie Kotok, really, isn't it? And the, Annie was a young girl who was protesting and Liz Danvers knows what happened to her. So I get what you're saying. I think what you're saying, Dave Mo, is everybody wins. Well, 
maybe the mine especially. I liked when she when she walks into the station and she's like, Coop, book me, will you? It was a nice twist on the Bookham Dano line. You book, you know, she's telling the police force what to do. There's no no struggle or, or debate about it. We get a moment where Liz sympathizes with Pete for being kicked out. I, she rubs her chin and I I kind of almost got a glimpse of maybe she thinks she might have had something to do with him being kicked out of his family home. What you mean a bit of realization of her actions have consequences for Danvers? Say it ain't so. <laughs> But he turns up trumps because he's got the thing that she's been looking for. And it's not him moving in because that would basically fast track him to a divorce. It's the information about the LLC tax returns, which tie back to Tuttle United. And they make the link between them and the Silver Sky Mining Company. So all that means that the mine bankrolls Salal and they push out bogus pollution numbers so the mine can keep doing what they're doing. Great work from Chloe Bishop. Sorry, I mean Pete Pryor. <laughs> and then the moment where I realised she didn't really care about whether he'd been kicked out was when she says, sorry about the divorce. And he's like, it's not a divorce. And then she goes, whatever. Yeah. I mean, this is probably the least problematic of the scenes between Danvers and Pryor this episode, I'll be yeah. honest with you. We'll stick with Pete Pryor because he gets a little scene with... Leah, where she tells the story of when Kayla fell in love with him. She was watching him play ice hockey and he deliberately fell over so someone else could score. Got a load of shit for it from his teammates, but he smiled because the kid's dad had had a stroke. So he basically let this guy score a goal to cheer the guy up. Now, here's my question. With all that's going on in this show already, who cares? Can we not just get to the important stuff? Yes. I, I, I hear that, but at the same time, I think that this is part of bigging Pete up as a character. That we care for him, particularly with what happens on his storyline in this episode, and who knows in the final episode. I don't know, I, I look over scripts and stories and advise writers and say oh you need to make this character a bit more fun or interesting or, or likable and I think it was that I mean the fact that you didn't like it means that they did it in a clumsy way I, I would possibly agree with that I think this story shows that and it goes back to what you were saying before that that Pete is prepared to take shit from people if it achieves what he wants it wants to achieve, right? So he took shit from his teammates, but he didn't care. He smiled because he'd done the thing that he wanted to do. What he wants to do is, is to be a good cop, right? So he wants to have the responsibility and he wants to have the ability to do all of this work. Like Danvers gives him the good work to do because he's good at it. So he, he puts up with what the grief that he gets from her. He puts up the, with the shit he gets from his dad as well. It's character development, and without that, you don't have a story. Okay, so my question is, really, though, what did we learn about him that we didn't already know, other than being explicitly told through the story? We already know that he's this kind of perfect angel. We already know that he wants to do the best thing possible. We already know that he's an amazing guy. Yeah, I don't think there's any harm in that being reinforced. Um, but it also, the kind of conversation is... Kayla misses that guy. She couldn't stop crying. Don't let Liz ruin you. There's still hope for your relationship. And then at the end of it, Leah says that about Danvers, she's not good with people she cares about. And that's that's the kind of lesson 
for Pete, right, is you still need to be good to the people you care about. And he doesn't really care about his dad, right? Let's let's move on. <laughs> we then get a very, very much a case study of um, Liz not being good to the people she cares about because she's talking about Leah needing to learn whilst Navarro is pleading Leah's case. But ultimately, Liz just flips it all up back onto Navarro. And then we go to the mine offices where Kate's showing uh, Liz the video footage of Navarro and Liz at the foot of at the, the front of the mine, which has been caved in. And Kate tells her all, uh, sorry, Liz tells her all about Otis. Uh, then they reveal that it's not a murder case after all, that forensics say it was a weather event. So basically, Connolly is helping Kate to cover up the whole Salal thing, and the case is now closed. There's no need for them to be looking into this any further. And how realistic is it that most of this conversation would be happening at the mining offices and not between the two law enforcement agency officers in a law enforcement agency property? Well, how convincing is it that there'd be corruption amongst the authorities? Yeah, but you wouldn't be that blatant, would you? Well, I'm not an authority. I, I probably wouldn't be that blatant. I think the main reason you're this upset, Damien, is that um, it's because Bill's such a terrible lay. <laughs> but I haven't partaken myself. <laughs> well, I heard. In Liz Danvers' words, fuck you and your fucking weather event. <laughs> The other crucial bit at the end of this scene, obviously, is that Connolly knows about the Wheeler case and he holds <laughs> this over Liz. So she now has to do what he says, close the case, because otherwise either she or Navarro is going to be in the shit. And we later find out that it is because Pete's been asking questions that Hank has gone and had a look at Pete's computer, found all the stuff that he was looking at about the Wheeler case, and he's passed that on to Connolly. That is a little bit, I will admit. That's a little bit of a torturous road to go down to get to that point, but fine. Is it, though? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think so. We'll agree to disagree. <laughs> Big reveal in the next scene. Now we get Hank and Kate together. Hank's basically telling Kate that Liz Danvers is looking for the Kotok location, and basically what they need to do is deal with Otis somehow, because he's the only one who could lead them there. Hank basically comes back to her by saying, look, I did something for you before, and you broke your promise of giving me chief of police. That was what Kate had promised him. Yeah, Kate also says we paid you well. So this is obviously something that has been set up. And she also says drug addicts get lost. And as you say, basically, she's saying kill Otis. I think also from that, we can assume that they have that the mine has Hank on retainer. Mm. Right. That he, he is their go to guy. In Ennis, obviously, Connie's up in Anchorage, but Hank is the guy that solves their problems and cleans things up for them in Ennis. Well, he was the one who had salvaged the Annie Kotok files, right, when there was a flood yeah. in the station. So we, we kind of suspected that for quite some time, haven't we, that he was involved in all that stuff. And it was around this time that, certainly for me, maybe I, I wasn't paying enough attention, but we understand why it's called Night Country. These caves are known as the Night Country. I loved all this stuff. So we, we hear Old Lang Syne and we see Navarro in the laun laundrette or laundromat for the Americans out there. And she's hearing voices and finding hair in the tumble dryer. Mm. I mean, I hate when that happens, right? I don't use laundromats, but yeah, I, I wouldn't be very happy about the state of my newly washed clothes. 
And then Kavik turns up with his traditional greeting of Evangeline, which I do love every time they see each other. But he's got intel, basically, on the symbols. So we learn a bit more about the symbols. Kenny's father taught him to walk away when he saw those symbols because they're a warning for hunters. They're places where the ice would swallow them whole. And his grandma told them the night country was going to take them. So who, who was that, Kenny? Yeah. Wasn't that good that Kenny was able to, well, I guess, if not all of us, at least me, was able to fill me in about walking away when uh, he sees those signs? No, people don't fancy the Craig David references this time. Okay, fine. <laughs> we just don't get them all the time. Well, they're not funny. I think it's probably the latter, right? <laughs> so Navarro wants to go into the caves. Liz basically tells her it's over and that Connolly knows about Wheeler. And I think, right, this is perhaps up for debate, but I think Navarro's reaction at that point tells us that it was her who killed Wheeler and not Liz. Yeah, well, well, that's something that definitely is suggested. I mean, yeah, Danvers says it's over a freak weather event. But yeah, there's huge suggestion that she and Navarro contributed in some way to Annie's death. I guess we'll find out the truth. I certainly hope we will do. I think with regards to Wheeler, though, I think we we all would have comfortably put a bet on that it wasn't Danvers that had done it and it was Navarro. Well, they could have done it together. And also the events of this episode certainly confirms that Danvers will go outside of the law. So my suspicion is that it was both of them. Yeah, I don't know, because one of our questions, obviously one of our key questions was uh, who killed Wheeler? And I don't know whether this is enough for us to say that that was answered or not. Uh, you can ponder on that, you know, until we get to the end of this recording. The, the crucial other thing that happened in this scene, of course, was that Danvers told Navarro to let it go, which is a clear reference to the Disney film Frozen, which obviously oh. relates to the icy tundra landscape that we're in. We just needed Dina Menzel to uh, pop up. But the other key thing, uh, the other key thing, is that Navarro tells Liz, you carry her now like I did all this time. You're leaving her alone in that cave in the dark. She's yours now. This is referring to Annie Kotok because basically Liz is saying, the case is over. We have to stop looking into this. And Navarro is saying, right, well, if you're making that decision now, it's on you. Yeah, although, I mean, technically, they are two separate cases. Technically. Yeah, they are. But the, the only reason they're able to continue looking into this is because of the Salal case. But also, a large part of why they're looking into this is because of the Annie case. They're interlinked in many ways. Yeah. Anyway, Navarro lets Leah out as a fuck you to Liz. And then we get a lovely little scene between Hank and Pete. Again, I don't know what you're talking about underwritten, Damo. This was a gorgeous little story about the time that Pete fell through the ice aged nine and Hank had to pull him out and then had to keep him awake on the way to hospital. Yeah, we got that this episode. Where has this writing been every other episode for them was my point. I completely agree. It, it was done at the point where the show writers 
needed it, but it wasn't particularly well set up. Earlier on, I mean, I can make the argument for this because earlier on, they needed the conflict between Pete and Hank. Pete needed to feel uncomfortable going into Hank's place to get the files. Then they needed the fight to relate that back to the Wheeler case. So I think there's definite sort of marks in the ice, if you like, that have been laid down to get us to this point. And I thought at the time when I'm watching this, I thought, oh, that's that's a really nice little scene maybe there is the possibility for Hank and Pete to have some sort of reconciliation you know he's staying at his place now all of this sort of stuff so yeah I I bought into that Uh, what what I think is Damo's opinion that the writing of those characters was done more efficiently than I would have liked as a viewer I would have liked to properly care because to be honest at the end of this episode when Pete's kills his dad I didn't fully buy that I wanted more of that relationship and more I I don't know where they're going to take that character in the final episode I mean Pete I just didn't buy why he finally chose to do that Kill his dad, is that what you're talking about? Kill his dad, you know, we can have a lovely story about the background between Hank and Pete, but I was like, oh, okay, we've lost Hank's character. I, I didn't care the, the fact that a son killed his dad, and I kind of feel like good writing, I would have... I would have really, not empathised, but I would have really understood or got that shock or whatever it was, but I don't think it worked. I'm happy to discuss that further when we, when we get to that part of the episode, definitely. I think my issue post that with Hank was the whole thing of him not knowing where Otis is and how he has to hunt him down, and the only way he can do it is by following down his- there's only one place Otis can be in Ennis. It's the lighthouse. Where else would a recovering <laughs> drug addict be? I think that was my other issue. I kind of felt like, well, why Why are we doing all this? He can go and grab Otis anytime he wants. Yeah, 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 fair. He's been too busy singing songs, though, to probably think about that. And he's not very good at his job. I don't know. He's very good at singing songs, though. We get a scene then with Navarro and Rose dispersing Julia's ashes into the ice. And then Navarro hears a voice calling her. She gets a quick flash to the desert. And then she's back as the ice cracks. And Rose tells her to lie down and eventually rescues her and tells her she was walking into the sea as Rose was calling her. So again, it kind of calls back to that idea of them being called out to the night country and maybe foreshadows again something that's going to happen in the final episode. I think Rose didn't play a big part or Fiona Shaw didn't play a big part in this particular episode, but I think it definitely foreshadows the last episode. I think she will play a major part in however this all gets wrapped up. Isn't it just fantastic to see Rose in this episode? We have not seen her enough. A genuinely interesting character who lives on the fringes of that world. I wonder if, because, you know, as we said, that story between Hank and Pete is that Pete goes through the ice and Hank has to try and break the ice in order to save him. And here we have Navarro about to break through the ice into the water, but Rose is able to save her before she's submerged. However, obviously, her sister's ashes are submerged. So I wonder if we find that both of them will survive, unlike... 
what happens with Hank. Yeah, possibly. We then get into uh, Liz and Leah having a conversation. Leah talking about the nine stillbirths that have been in in recent times. This obviously has a big impact on on Liz. The kind of this whole conversation. Leah says the line, "You know, I haven't given up on you." Liz is at the point where she feels like she's got no choice but to close the case, and then she gets reminded of all of the bad things that are happening to children. Obviously, dead children impact her. She's lost her own child, and she ends up sort of later on at the mortuary and there's all of these coffins there because it's three months before they can dig any graves. Let's not also forget that this is another classic sign of Liz not knowing boundaries because she barges into that bathroom whilst she's still in the bath. And whilst they have this kind of intimate moment where they have this conversation, it's still incredibly problematic behaviour. Being in the bath once you get to a certain age should be personal space. I was really interested when Liz visited what is a kind of unofficial morgue, like a temporary morgue, like they can't bury dead people regardless of their age. And there was what looked like nearly 100 people that had passed away and needed to be buried. I think that kind of brought us into the moment as to what it is like to live under that night country circumstances. I think also it just gives us an idea of how big the problem is in Ennis. Mm. So far, all we've seen is life from a very small group of people within basically the law enforcement agency and people related to them predominantly. But Ennis is a small city, a big town, and we see in that that those are people that have died so far this year because they have to wait till it's warm enough for to actually break ground in the graveyard next to it. And you think, well, there's lots of people also being cremated. And whether that is a native tradition also, given that it's impossible to bury people and therefore mm. it's probably not great to have those bodies knocking about. I think it's really interesting to see the damage that it's doing on the population. Yeah, and if you think it's been one month for nine stillbirths, the forever, the eternal night has been 14 days. I mean, the fact that there are so many bodies, it says a lot. Definitely. And back at the station, we get Liz finding something in the evidence locker. Later discoveries, heroin for Otis. But she also has this, I think, brilliant scene between her and Pete. She says, what do you think you know about Wheeler? The whole thing about the how... Connolly knows about Wheeler kind of comes up through this, you know, back on her ask the right question trip. But Pete has basically found out that they visited Wheeler 10 times. He was left handed, but obviously they've shot him on the wrong side. So the suicide doesn't make sense. But someone flipped every single photo of the victim where the bruises were going from left to right. And she had a birthmark from her yearbook photo. So there's some incredible detective work going on here. But he basically ends up this whole thing with asking, did you and Navarro shoot Wheeler? And that's when Liz says, you need to learn when to stop asking questions. I didn't like that. I thought that was bullshit. Sorry. To have to ask the question thing, fine. I don't necessarily have an issue with that. I just didn't enjoy the reaction, but that's a personal thing. Don't be stupid or stupider. I thought that was a really strong line. The whole kind of thing of Hank having access to Pete's computer leads Liz to tell Pete he can't stay at Hank's anymore. And he gives him the key to her shack, which when he turns up to, it's not not a particularly nice place to stay. Totally. I was thinking, how the fuck is he going to survive the night in there? 
It's just like a, a, a fishing chair in a hut. We then jump to Navarro and Kavik, um, having a nice little spooning moment. Liz is back with Otis. She calls Navarro and says she was wrong. So Navarro gets up to go. Kavik tells her to come back and she kisses him. Goodbye, I think. And he says again, come back. So kind of laying it all down there. Is this going to be the last time that Kavik and Ange see each other? Just come back, okay? That, to me, immediately made me think she's not coming back. There's this nice moment of Navarro hearing the voices and she sees this child pointing. She's driving the car, right? And there's a kid crossing the road and the kid points. Mm. And she sees the other three. Right? She sees the Wheeler woman. So the woman who was pointing at her uh, with Wheeler. She sees Lund sitting up in the bed. And then one other, which I think maybe is Annie. It was hard to tell. Someone with long brown hair covering her face. But I think it was Annie. Pointing at the child, I do think is obviously very significant. A lot of screen time was giving to that. Yeah. But then the mum comes back and pulls the kid out of the road. It felt almost comedic to me. You mean you burst into laughter every time a mum saves her daughter? Well, she didn't save the kid. The car wasn't moving, right? The kids just stood in the road pointing at her like, what's that? Is it The Simpsons? <laughs> or, or is it Futurama with that monkey that just kind of stops and points <laughs> uh, at the character? It felt a little bit like that. I don't know. It just felt, for me, it just felt a bit ridiculous that this random kid stopped in the road, pointed at her, and then the mum comes back a couple of seconds later and goes, what are you doing? And, you know, pulls her off this road. I thought it was a little bit comedic. Well, let's get to our Oedipal moment anyway, because Hank turns up at Liz's and before Navarro can get there and they can get head off to Nixick Pass, which is the highest point of the caves, Hank turns up and says Connolly wants him to bring in Otis. But before that, Danvers has shown that she's not naive. She makes sure that Otis points exactly where it is on the map before he smokes some heroin. So thankfully, should anything happen to Otis, Danvers knows exactly where to go. Yeah. yeah. And that's just good police work, right? As soon as he's used it, he's going to be off his face. Yeah, only uses loose drugs. She reveals that uh, Otis is there um, and then calls his bluff, Hank's bluff, and he reacts, basically. I'm going to do this the way you did, Wheeler. You turn my kid against me. And then she said, he loves you. Then Hank shoots Otis twice. Pete's obviously overheard the commotion and the gunfire. He comes out. Liz tells him to think. She doesn't tell him what to do. She just tells him to think, make his own mind up. And then Hank says, you should know, I didn't kill Annie Kay. I just moved her body. Yeah. Blood is blood. She's a call back to a line he said before. And then he raises his gun at Liz and Pete shoots him in the head. It was an awesome part of the episode. It, it, I mean, I, I did generally enjoy it and I wasn't expecting it. I would have liked to have felt more satisfied by the lead up and the build to that. It felt, okay, that makes sense in hindsight, but it didn't feel particularly satisfying. I, I loved it. I thought it was great. And there's a lovely aerial shot as Navarro approaches and then comes in and you see the sort of almost the feet of Hank, the bodies on the floor and Navarro and, and Liz and Pete all there. I, I just thought it was really well done. Brilliant moment. I got it somewhere in between. So in the moment watching it, I loved it. I was gripped. And then I think a little bit once I'd had time to think about it, I think I immediately responded in the WhatsApp group about how good that was. And then I had some time and I thought, well, why is he shot 
like the, the for me there was a couple of issues there like he could have shot Hank anywhere and that would have stopped him from shooting Danvers he didn't need to shoot him in the head um but I guess the more I thought about it was that well we've said before and you know as you were talking about earlier Neil the Pete is this kind of perfect police officer he he wants to make sure he's doing the right thing for the community and obviously he sees his dad as the evil or, or at least the conduit for evil in his community yeah. and and so we have this Oedipal killing particularly to save I, I guess his kind of his semi-mother but yeah I think that's probably one of the issues I had um, and I'll get into the other one because you've got your hand up Neil I just want to say I think that whole narrative that whole storyline with Peter and his dad could have been so much better and therefore the effect the response like I I didn't really care when it happened yeah I think that's fair I think the other thing that I it's uh in the scene with between Navarre and Rose it's mentioned very briefly that there's a category four on the way and just by chance this crazy massive storm is coming and it's a great, well, not smoke screen, snow screen, I guess, <laughs> to hide their tracks. Yeah. yeah. Pete's the one who's going to deal with it all because Navarro and Liz have to go to the caves and this is their final chance to really go and do what they need to do and find the truth of the matter. So Pete's taking it on himself. He's going to be the one to clean it up and he will be the one who will be under suspicion if anything does emerge later on. My question is, do either of you believe Danvers when she says, hey, it shouldn't be you. I'm happy to stay behind and do it. <laughs> Navarro says this didn't happen. And they do. It's very clear that three of them are going to, I guess, bury Hank in the ice and nobody will know. But I, I have a kind of suspicion that might not be the case. I'll be disappointed if that is the end of Hank. Well, Rose is the one that knows how to get rid of the bodies, right? Yeah, take take me to Julia. Basically, they're gonna they're gonna sink the body in the ice, aren't they? And then it ends with them driving off with a very traitors style rendition <laughs> of "Save Tonight." And obviously, a key lyric in that song is "Tomorrow I'll be gone." Yeah, tomorrow comes to take me away. I wish that I that I could stay, but girl, you know I've got to go. Oh, oh, and Lord, I wish it wasn't so. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh, Damo, your boy band. I was doing it in their style. Why it needed to be like that? It was really unnecessary. <laughs> That's what they do. They take popular songs and they, they do them in really slow delivery, really sinister. I really enjoyed that, to be fair. Well, let's get to our questions then. Have we asked the right questions? Maybe that should be the first question. And have any been answered at all? I get For me, the only one that you could consider maybe answered is who killed Wheeler. I don't know if that's answered. It's not definitive, is it? What are the other questions? Remind us, Adam. Okay, where is Oliver Tagak? Do we want to keep that one? Do we care anymore? No. What did Holden whisper to Ange in her dream? I'd still quite like to know that one. What did Annie find in the caves? Yeah. Where is Clark? Yeah. How did the scientists end up on the ice? Yeah. I don't know whether. I mean, I think we've got our nonsense answer, but I would Mm, like to know for definite. Yeah, Yeah. I don't know if that's true, the answer that we've been given. Who killed Annie? Mm. Still don't know. We know that Hank moved the body. According to him, he didn't kill her. What if the answer is Ennis? Ennis killed Annie. Well, so be it. 
We don't know for certain, so we can definitely keep it as a question, but it feels to me like Annie was slipped into the ice, just like Hank's going to be. She, but yeah, she found out stuff that the mind didn't want her to know. Ultimately, Kate McKittrick is behind it all, but whether she did actually killed her or not, I don't you know. And then final question is, how did the polar bear lose its eye? Yeah, I really want to know that. I think it's a real shame if we don't get that next episode. What she found in the caves was a whole load of one-eyed polar bears who've all lost one eye because of the pollution that the mine was pumping out. Or they've lost one eye because people kept on pointing at them and they didn't (laughs) judge the length of their arm and it just kept on getting poked (laughs) in the eye. I I would also love to find out why all these polar bears have only got one eye. And I don't believe it stands to the mine. What I want to know is how they smell. (laughs) Awful. I think it's no idea. Oh, my God. I was hoping that we'd avoid this. (laughs) Listeners, please note my silence. So we're saying that questions answered are zero. And so no one said zero last week. And the current scores are Adam on one point. Yeah. And everyone else on nil. Correct. Everyone on me. (laughs) Do we want to add any other questions? We didn't ask the right question. Obviously, the right question last time round would have been who bankrolls Salal, right? Are there any questions we're not asking? Who did it? I don't know anymore. I uh, I don't think there's anything else. (laughs) I'd like to fill the questions that I want answered. Um, I don't think there's any new questions that I want answered. To be honest, I'm dreading the the conclusions or the answers going to be really clumsy and I'm going to be disappointed. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Resident Debbie Downer, that's always my fear. I think <laughs> the question I'd add then is, will we find out if all this stuff is based in some scientific fact or will it be some supernatural hoodoo, chupacabra, satchquatch nonsense? I can't ask that question. I need you to frame it in a better way. Like, are you wanting the final episode to tell you whether the supernatural really exists? Um, (laughs) Will we learn more about this? There will be an answer to that, and it will either be yes, we will, or no, we won't. I guess so. Maybe the question is, will this all have been science fiction or science fact? Okay. Or are we satisfied with the outcome, or are we not? That is subjective. That's the only issue with that one. That is subjective. Yeah, that, that's a poll. That, 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 that's a vote. I, I think that you know, the, the golden rules of who, what, where, why, when should should dictate our questions. So Will doesn't quite fit into that. <laughs> I mean, it is one of the five question words. All right. Um... Who, what, Will is still a question. It's still a W word that starts a question. All right. How about this? Wherefore art... Shall we find? <laughs> All right, let's move on. This is already going really long. I think we're done, thankfully. Uh, other than predicting how many questions will be answered. So we've got currently four, five, six, seven, eight, nine questions total. Uh, we're getting rid of where is Oliver Tagak? Eight questions. Four will be answered. Why four? That seems you have really to pick a number. <laughs> I'm going to go, well, if I go four, we're going to get the same amount of points. So let I, I'm going to say... Three, and I encourage Adam not to choose three or four. Listeners, because you can't see this, Adam is currently counting out on his fingers how many <laughs> things it's going to be. <laughs> I think there were there be four questions definitely answered, and I think our other four questions aren't the right questions. I think they're the wrong questions. So I would, if I if I had my choice, I would go with 
four. But in the interests of the game, I will go five. Oh. Because otherwise Damien can't win. So I'll go five. I'll go five questions for this one. Despite your uh, views of the show, um, I hope you've enjoyed talking about it. <laughs> I'm still very much enjoying True Detective and looking forward to the finale. Uh, let's not forget, Jodie Foster was brilliant in Silence of the Lambs and is brilliant in this show. Is that why you have to bring up Silence of the Lambs? She is brilliant in this show. I completely agree. And I also am really enjoying watching this show. I'm just being really picky, I guess, about... The writing. Yeah, I just hope that the final episode is more in keeping with the first three than episode four or five. Grand. Well, um, if you want to let us know what you thought of this episode or anything else that you're watching or any other theories you have on True Detective, you can contact us on the social media at TVDNAPod or you can email TVDNAPod at gmail.com. We've just released a watch this episode where Damo and I spoke about expats and Mr. and Mrs. Smith and Master of the Air and loads of great shows. And Neil and I will shortly be recording a Who University Challenge on the one and only 10th Doctor, Mr. David Tennant. I will leave you then with one of the lines I started the episode with. You will not sing. You lost your sound. You will not song. Yeah. <laughs> I think Adam's had enough.